0: i'm Susie wiseman and this is jacobin radio jack rasmus author of central bankers at the end of their ropes joins us to dissect the trump ryan mcconnell tax cut plan, which he sees as a policy shift to rely more on deregulation and tax cuts to subsidize banks that Jack says will only increase financial instability and economic fragility. The tax cut will add at least 1.4 trillion to the national debt, setting the stage for deeper cuts to public goods. Medicaid, Medicare, and ultimately Social Security will suffer while the super wealthy and their businesses will reap the benefits that won't trickle down. This is neoliberalism on steroids, and we'll get the lowdown from Jack Rasmus. We then turn to net neutrality protections, which are threatened by FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, who plans to repeal net neutrality, allowing for an even more radical privatization of the Internet. Victor Picard, author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, joins us to discuss what is planned and what is at stake. The protections now in place are safeguards that prevent private providers like Comcast and Verizon from slowing down or blocking certain types of content or privileging paid prioritization for faster streaming and download times. Picard says this isn't just deregulation. It's a threat to the core social contract and our access to information. Massive resistance could push back against this blatant attempt to censor information by limiting speed and access, and Picard is hopeful that widespread opposition to these moves can prevent the worst. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and welcome to Jacobin Radio. We're going to begin today with that tax bill, and I've invited Jack Rasmus to discuss it. Jack tweets it at Dr. Jack Rasmus, all one word. He's got a new book called Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, monetary policy in the coming depression. And he's joining us to discuss this proposed Trump-Ryan McConnell tax plan. We should call it a tax cut plan, which Jack sees as a policy shift to rely more on deregulation and tax cuts to subsidize banks that Jack says will only increase financial instability. The tax cut will add somewhere between $1 and $1.5 to the national debt. It sets the stage for deeper cuts to public goods, Medicaid, Medicare, and ultimately Social Security, all the popular programs that sustain the elderly and the poor and just encompasses so many. And all of them will suffer, while, of course, the super wealthy and their businesses will reap the profits that you can guarantee guarantee won't triple down. But the real reason I wanted to bring Jack on is not just to talk about the immorality of this bill, which of course is immoral, but there's real political economy behind it. And so we need to talk about it. And maybe we should characterize it as neoliberalism on steroids. And we're going to get the lowdown from Jack. And he is, as I mentioned, the author most recently of Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, Monetary Policy and the Coming Depression by Clarity Press, just out at the end of the summer. He also wrote Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy, Looting Greece, and many other titles. And he blogs at JackRasmus.com. His website is Kickless Productions. That's K-Y-K-L-O-S Productions.com. And Jack, with all that, welcome to Jacobin Radio. My
1: pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm really pleased to have you. And I think we have to begin, of course, with this tax cut plan and maybe you could just sort of lay it out. What are its main aspects, and who benefits and who's hurt?
1: Right. Well, we have the tax cuts in the House, and that's the template, the benchmark. And the way to describe the Senate version is that it's just really moving the money around, giving a little bit more over here and taking it over there, and we'll explain where here and there is. But if you look at the benchmark, the house trump bill they talk about 1.45 trillion dollars no no this is a nearly six trillion dollars in tax cuts four and a half trillion of which are tax cuts for the one percent their corporations and their non-corporate businesses including multinational corporations so it's really a four and a half trillion dollar tax cut three trillion of which is being paid for by the middle class you see, in deductions, eliminating a deductions, and eliminating exemptions and other measures, so it's really three trillion more taxes on us, the middle class, working class, really, and four and a half trillion for them. And the big measures here are the corporate tax cuts and the non-corporate tax cuts. The corporate tax cuts just the basic corporate tax rate reduction, is uh, $1.5 trillion for corporations. Now, you got to understand the corporations are already in the U.S. are sitting on $2 trillion cash hoard. That's
0: right. And, I'm glad you offshore, brought that up. Offshore,
1: offshore, the multinational U.S. corporations are sitting on an additional $2.8 trillion. And that's what they admit, not what they're putting in their shelters that we don't know about. So why do we need to give corporations $1.5 trillion more when they're sitting on nearly five trillion now. And all this argument about, oh, they need it for investment and so forth and to create jobs is just a lot of BS because Studies by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, a government agency, shows that 90% of all windfalls end up in stock buybacks and dividend payouts by these corporations. So you can expect 90% of the 1.5 trillion corporate tax cut to go into stock buybacks and dividends, which by the way have since 2009 amounted to already 6 trillion dollars, a trillion dollars a year in buybacks and dividend payouts, and now $1.5 trillion corporate tax cut, 90% of which will be buybacks and dividend payouts. Before you uh, go
0: on there, Jack, I think this is a really important point that needs to be emphasized. And underlying that, of course, is what you just said about how many trillions are being hoarded, that you have literally money just stacked away rather than being used for investment. And as you mentioned, this is another vehicle for more money to be given, and it'll be, again, not used for investment. So people can cry infrastructure problems all they like, but there's no guarantee that we'll ever get productive investment. And it is a really strange form of capitalism that doesn't want to turn money into capital. So maybe you could just make a comment on that.
1: Sure. Well, it does go into investment, financial asset investment, and investment offshore you see, this is where all this subsidization of uh, capital incomes and corporations uh, really ends up. It doesn't end up in the U.S. We've given $10 trillion in tax cuts already under Bush and Obama for investors and corporations and businesses. $10 trillion already. And we have a long-term slowdown in real investment already going on. And that's why productivity is so low and wage income is not growing. So we got to give them another $5 trillion you know, so they can invest in stocks. That's why you get this huge 400% run-up since 2008 in the major U.S. stock markets, and the bond markets, the same thing, and low interest rates. This is the shift going on in 21st century neoliberal capitalism from real asset investment, at least in the U.S. and U.K., to financial asset investment, and that's what I treated in detail in my prior book, 2016, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy. There's this shift to financial asset investing going on, which is slowing the real economy, but it's being driven by these huge income transfers going on.
0: I definitely want to get into that, but let's just go a little bit slower in this because if this is not going to stoke economic growth other than to, as you say, plow money into financial assets, which I think most people now understand that they do more plunder than bring more growth, that it's not productive investment in the sort of, what do we call those, shovel-ready projects that actually help Main Street rather than Wall Street, and as well that it brings into being huge trillion-plus dollars increase in the deficit. And maybe you could just say something a little bit about that because the Republicans, their overwhelming majority harp All the time about balanced budgets and no deficits. But we probably all can remember when Dick Cheney enunciated the sort of post Reagan Republican view that deficits don't matter, don't worry about it, except when Democrats are in power. So do you think that there's any concern about that at all from the Republicans and what's behind this?
1: Now, the Republicans are concerned about deficits when it comes to spending on social programs. But when it comes to tax cuts and defense spending, then that concern about deficits go away. Since 2001, 60% of the run-up in the federal deficits and debt, from $4 trillion in 2000 to $20 trillion today, 60% is the result of tax cuts and slowing tax revenue collections because of a slowing economy. 60%. And they talk about, oh, it's going to generate economic growth and offset. That's a bald-faced lie. It just doesn't do that because it doesn't generate real tax revenue when you don't invest in real things and you invest in financial markets instead. Let's go back to the Senate bill itself and how it's similar and different from the House bill here. And as I said, they're just moving the money around here. What they're not moving around is this big cut in the corporate rate to 20%. But you also have to factor in, pass through income from non corporate businesses. Non corporate pass through business income, which is profits, not corporate profits, but business profits, right? Mm-hmm. Is paid at thirty nine point six percent. They're reducing that to twenty five percent. The Senate might tweak that a little bit, but that's about seven hundred billion dollars. One and a half trillion for the corporate tax cut, about seven hundred billion for the pass through, and by the way that's where most of Trump's personal income comes through. So his lie about it's going to hit him is just a lot of BS. He's going to make a 15 to $20 million more through just this pass-through provision cut. Now, the Senate bill, while it tweaks a little bit the pass-through rate, both sides agree to eliminate the AMT, alternate minimum tax, at the end of the whole process here. In the meantime, they'll raise the exemption to $22 million from $11 million. Now, he's going to benefit from that as well. But the big difference here, I think, is in what the multinational corporations are going to pay under the Senate bill as opposed to the House bill. Uh, This is the big boondoggle where multinational corporations like Apple and, and the pharma companies get to keep all their profits offshore and not bring it back. If they brought it back, they'd have to pay taxes. But they let them keep it all offshore. And now there's like almost $3 trillion offshore. And they're saying, okay, bring it back someday, and you'll pay only 10% instead of the 20% new rate. That's about $570 billion windfall for the multinational corporations under the Senate bill. $570 billion. That's on top of the $1.5 trillion corporate rate reduction and the 700 billion non-corporate business. So we're looking at at least 3 trillion dollars immediate windfall for corporations, businesses, multinational, and domestic. $3 trillion.
0: So, Jack Rasmus, as you're laying it out, this is going to be a huge wealth transfer. And, of course, wealth transfer is what neoliberalism has really been about. But, as you also said, it's going to create big deficits. But the other question is, if it's unfair and it doesn't help the economy, it doesn't spur the economy, how is it negative for the economy? And when you answer that, I'd like you to bring up what you see as the conditions of Of the economy. You've been writing about fragility and instability that all of these policies have brought about. Maybe you could just start by defining that and discussing what this tax bill will do toward making it either more unstable or more fragile or not.
1: Well, it's not going to do very much, if anything, for the real economy because, as we say, it gets diverted, it gets hoarded, it goes offshore, it goes into financial markets, very little goes into the U.S. economy because it's so much more profitable for companies to invest abroad in emerging markets, to invest in securities, exchange currencies, to invest in derivatives, to invest in markets abroad, to invest in all the the new derivatives and so forth, it's much more profitable. So that's where the money capital is flowing, and it will continue to flow as a result of this particular bill. So it won't have much of an effect on the real economy. In fact, I see signs of the real economy beginning to slow down here, particularly with uh, consumption. You know, we got a little boost going going on here and expectations that the tax cut and the economy will grow. I see that fading about a year from now, and I see us entering another recession in early 2019. Well, maybe- We're already seeing problems in the auto market and construction and housing, and we don't have any real wage gains going on, wage income gains. What we got is consumption based upon the rising debt once again and the people cutting into their savings. There's no real growth in consumption going on. And we got a little bit of business investment going on, but that's in inventories expecting this tax cut to give them a boost. But I think this thing is going to totally fade here uh, beginning second half of next year. That's my prediction.
0: What do you think, Jack Rasmus, that could be done? What kind of policies, not this tax cut, let's say, but that could be adopted if that's possible to strengthen the economy rather than to further weaken it?
1: We have to have more government investment, I believe, in real things that employ real people, that give real income and real consumption. When all the wealth is flying to the 1% and they're investing in financial assets and offshore and hoarding, well, it's not going where it needs to go. Economics professor Emmanuel Saez at UC Berkeley has Uh this database and has been doing studies And uh, his latest uh, information shows that 95% of all the net income gains since 2009 has gone to the wealthiest 1%.
0: And that's no surprise. Right. Okay. Given all of that, we have seen after the crash of two thousand and eight, seven and eight, that the Fed used policies, quantitative easing, and almost zero or negative interest rates. But under Janet Yellen, they have slowly, very, very slowly, been trying to inch up on the interest rates. And what is the effect of the Fed doing that? And does it help at all? And what steps perhaps should they be taking instead?
1: Well, what happened in 2008-9 is the capitalist policymakers decided monetary policy was going to be the driver, the main policy. And they lowered interest rates to 0.15%. Banks could go and borrow at 0.15%. Free money, essentially, for virtually eight years until about a year ago. It's gone up just a little bit. Uh, virtually free money. And the banks loaned it, of course, at very low rates. And big companies like Apple Computer, even though they have $268 billion in cash, they were issuing bonds to raise more money to pay buybacks and dividend payouts. But that was a form of subsidization, you see. Monetary policy was the primary form of subsidization. The Fed pumped about $7 trillion in QE, going directly buying these bad bonds. Mortgage bonds and treasury bonds and everything directly from investors, seven trillion dollars. When you add up the refinancing and the rolling over of these bonds, they say it's four and a half, but it's really seven trillion. And then other measures, another five six trillion. If you look at the in my book, central bankers at the end of their ropes. About twenty five trillion dollars was pumped into the economy by central banks in Europe, Japan, China, and the U S. Twenty five trillion dollars okay, a lot of that went into this stock buybacks, dividend payouts and so forth, right? Massive amount, but that amount of money was so much that it's causing these financial asset bubbles. I mean, the stock markets are almost in bubble territory. Cryptocurrencies are bubbles.
0: Right. Housing market as well. Jack, we only have two minutes left, and I really wanted to get to, you've laid out the problems, but maybe you could just talk a little bit in the last minute or two about what you think could be done in terms of policy and why they won't do it. It does really seem like these policies go against the interests of capitalism and the economy.
1: Well, as I was saying, the central bank monetary policy was subsidizing capital incomes, but now because of the bubble, now they're shifting to taxes and deregulation as a way of subsidizing corporations and capital incomes. They've gone as far as they could with monetary policy. Now they're shifting to fiscal policy. What this means is that the capitalist state in the 21st century is playing an increasing role in subsidizing capital incomes. This is really what's new about neoliberalism in the last decade and a half. And to understand what neoliberalism is, you have to understand this acceleration of subsidization, first monetary, now fiscal. What I propose in my book, Central Bankers They the End of Rope, is that we have to do a radical democratization of the central bank. And I have a proposal for a constitutional amendment and enabling legislation to do just that. you got to take the central bank out of control of the private banks, and they still control them by the private banks. What you've got to do on the fiscal side is that you need a total new political party in this country. I mean, what you got are two wings of the corporate party of America, and they just go back and forth and they tweak a little bit here. Now, you can see... See it in the tax bill, right? And we need a real independent democratic political party that we don't have. We have choices between two wings of the corporate party of America. And until that happens, you will not get the legislation that's needed to redress this income inequality through the tax structure, through government spending that gets to real people, through the creation of real jobs, through the resurrection of the labor movement in the unions. It all depends on that political development, which we don't see yet, There's a lot of agitation at the grassroots level, and this has to come from the grassroots, from real people. It can't be intellectuals declaring a new party. That's not the way to do it.
0: We're going to have to leave it there, Jack, but I think you've laid it out extremely well, and I'll tell the listeners to run out and get your book, Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, Monetary Policy in the Coming Depression. You can also find all the information that you need about that and all of Jack's writings at kickclosproductions.com. He tweets. It's at Dr. Jack Rasmus. And I want to thank you so much for joining us once again uh, can today. I, can
1: I just notify my next book coming out next Quick. spring? is called The Neoliberal Presidency From Reagan to Trump.
0: And we'll have you on for that, too. Thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Right. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're going to come back and talk about net neutrality. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. I'm really pleased to have Victor Picard with us for the very first time. We're going to be talking about net neutrality. Many people are wondering now if the Internet, that bustling, bubbling gateway to cyberspace that by its very nature brought a democratization of politics... Because ordinary people could create platforms and find audience for discussion and views and more. And now we're wondering whether it's over as a place of bubbling ferment and will now just be another commercial zone. Are those heady days that trumpeted the emancipatory potential of networks and hive minds and crowdsource revolution and live stream liberation finished. This has been very important. It was important in Russia to prevent further dictatorship. It's almost made dictators obsolete. And now, well, we'll find out. And where many saw a way to prevent censorship. And then, as I mentioned, dictatorships, corporations, on the other hand, saw business opportunity. The markets intruded and the telecommunications oligopoly is poised to radically limit access except for those who can pay. And as we know or should know, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai announced his agency is going to repeal the hard-won net neutrality protections that were put in place by the Obama administration or kept in place. And to understand that, I brought one of the best experts here to join us, Victor Picard. He's an associate professor of communication at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School. His research focuses on internet policy and the political economy of the media. And his writing has appeared everywhere and his recent books include will the last reporter turn out the lights with robert mcchesney and mainly america's battle for media democracy so with all of that victor welcome to jacobin radio
2: thanks so much for having me
0: well i think we should start with what is net neutrality and how is it threatened
2: net neutrality is although it sounds very wonky and complicated it's a very simple idea it's a safeguard that prevents internet service providers so for example Comcast and Verizon or Time Warner from slowing down your internet content it prevents them from blocking particular types of content or devices online and it also prevents what's called paid prioritization and that's this idea where If you don't have net neutrality, it opens the door for your Internet service providers to shake down content creators, to pay up more, to get into a fast lane. So it really creates this tiered Internet that thus far we've largely avoided.
0: That's very good. Thank you. And I will always think of the Internet as part of what we call the public airwaves, or at least a public good, because information is so critical, democracy. And as I said in the introduction, it's been a huge advance in many ways, although there's been downsides, too, to opening up the floodgates to information. So maybe you could just say... Right at the outset, one, is it what I'm sort of describing it or was it? And who's pushing this privatization or deregulation and and who is hurt by it?
2: Sure. Well, I think that's a great question. I think pretty much everyone is hurt by the loss of net neutrality except for, again, the big Internet service providers. And we should remind our listeners, many people know this intuitively, But in most cases, many Americans only have access to one major internet service provider in their community. So if there was actual competition, if we weren't at the mercy of these telecom monopolies, we could simply ditch our internet service provider and move to another one if they start interfering with our content. So without net neutrality, everyone who, especially people who don't have the resources to pay up more to make sure that their websites load quickly or stream quickly. or Also, I think this hurts journalists and activists disproportionately who may not have the resources but also might have points of view, might have types of content that corporate interests don't want to see online. And without net neutrality, they could actually block certain types of content.
0: Like, for example, you mentioned, and of course, everybody's talking about the tiered speed and access, but how would you see the blocking? In the beginning, it was the wild cybersphere, right? And then you saw in Russia, there were attempts to block access. In China, they've blocked access. How would you see it? Or what are you talking about in terms of the U.S.?
2: Sure. Well, there is this belief, and it's true to some extent, that we did have this flourishing democracy online, but part of the idea or part of the mythology to that was that the government was not involved. In fact, the government has always been involved. The internet has actually always been a highly regulated space, but part of that regulatory protection was to prevent exactly what we're talking about, this kind of dystopian future where internet service providers can determine what you can access online, how you can Express yourself creatively and politically online and they always say that they would never do this They would never dare block our content. They would never try to censor us But there have already been examples the media reform organization free press has a wonderful Resource where they show a history of all the times that internet service providers have tried to block content And it's clear that they have done this whenever they thought they weren't being prevented from doing so one example I often trot out because it's a very political one was the company telus which was canada's second largest telecommunications company in 2005 began blocking access to a server that was hosting a website that was supporting a labor strike against the company so you can imagine like that's one very clear example of where a corporate interest was being threatened by an activist group and used its power to block content and that's something we could see more of without net neutrality
0: Right. So in your book on media democracy, you talk about this corporate libertarian view, which I think is really about how corporations have fought to be seen as people, that's the crude way of putting it, or at least as entities that should have individual freedoms protected by the First Amendment. What is the relationship of that to net neutrality? Or is there one?
2: yes i think there is a relationship the loss of net neutrality and the arguments that are made to defeat net neutrality in my view are textbook cases of this corporate libertarian argument and of course net neutrality is often described as the first amendment of the internet but it's assumed when people say that that it's our first amendment it's protecting our ability to express ourselves and to access information However, Verizon, for example, has a very different view on that. They think that they are essentially a publisher. They've made this argument in court where they believe the First Amendment protects their right to interfere with our content, as if they were a publisher of a newspaper and they get to determine what content is online for us to access. And this seems very backwards and indeed anti-democratic, but under a kind of corporate libertarian paradigm, this makes perfect sense where corporations are individuals and the First Amendment shields them from public interest regulations.
0: I just have to interject now because it's so hearkening back to the debates literally a century ago with William Randolph Hearst newspapers. He said, if you want to have access, then buy a newspaper like I did. <laughs> you know? And right. one of the demands, by the way, after the revolution in Russia was that anyone should have state resources if they had 10,000 backers to get a newspaper with no restrictions. So it's really like this whole notion of who gets to see what and who has access to information. And what you're saying is pretty ominous. So let's maybe just go from there into what you think the implications are going to be. If Ajit Pai gets away with this and we find deregulation and no net neutrality, what is it going to mean for what we call freedom of the press or access to information?
2: Yes, I think it's really going to impoverish the entire notion of freedom of the press and freedom to information in the United States without net neutrality. And as your listeners probably know, by all appearances, it looks like it's going to be thrown out at the FCC on December 14th is when they'll make their final decision. However, the battle will not end there. It will continue and actually probably go to court. But in the meantime, if we were to lose net neutrality, it does radically change the underlying logic of the internet. It does create this sort of payola situation where you have to pay to play. You have to pay to speak online. And this is very anti-democratic. I agree with what you're saying before. It reminds me of that old phrase that freedom of the press for those who own one or for those who could actually afford to buy one. And that's the kind of situation that we're facing without net neutrality.
0: Maybe we should just emphasize there once again, Victor, this notion that I think many people share that the net, that cyberspace is part of the public airwaves. It was really interesting in Congress quite a while ago, I think in '96, when they were still trying to figure out what the internet was. And you had the ludicrous spectacle of the senator from Alaska saying, oh, they were these pipes, you know, and (laughs) and they still call it the internet. Yeah, but clearly people were grappling with new technology and didn't know how to define it or understand what it represented. But now, so much later, what do you think the prevailing notion of that cyberspace is?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. The way that we frame this, the way the language that we use in describing the Internet very much sets the stage for how we think about it into the future and how we decide to regulate it as a society, how we decide to protect it. And too often, it's treated as this kind of magical technology that's beyond the regulatory realm or as some kind of commodity. It's like a product of the free market or it's seen as a luxury and not a necessity. So. All of these ways that we describe it are are very important in framing these discussions. I think it's best to think of it, and I agree with you, I think there are parallels between thinking of it with broadcasting as the public airwaves. I think we should think of the Internet as a crucial public infrastructure. I mean, it's something upon which democracy absolutely depends, and therefore we should treat it as a utility, not a commodity. We should treat it as a public good, a public service and really try to protect it from the market, we should not simply hand it over to these oligopolies. This is something that really needs to serve the entire public. Thinking of the Internet as a public good is a good starting point.
0: You're reminding me in the very beginning when very few people began on emails. And in the beginning, Mm -hmm. I remember when universities were doing it, if anyone should dare, like, say, I'm going to be gone, you know, next semester, you can rent my house. And people came down very hard on using it for anything other than the circulation of ideas and maybe announcements of seminars and things like that. And boy, that was then and this is now, right? But you just mentioned how important it is as a tool for democracy. And democracy is being threatened in so many ways, and the struggle for democracy is becoming almost a revolutionary struggle these days. What would be the impact for those of us who want to create some society that is governed from below rather than from these corporate interests from above? What's the impact of net neutrality to that? Yeah, losing
2: net neutrality would have particularly dire consequences on any kind of pro-democracy movement right now. And of course, in our current Trump moment, (laughs) this is tragic. We need the internet. This is a tool that activists require that social movements depend on. So I think the stakes are even higher at this current political time than it is during other moments as we're facing a kind of authoritarian government. So yeah, I think the stakes couldn't be higher. This, is again, is why we really can't treat the Internet as some sort of placing for corporate power. It really does need to be reclaimed. Another dangerous way of reframing this discussion is that what Ajit Pai at the FCC is doing is often described as deregulation, that this is a deregulatory move. Uh-huh. But that's a gross misnomer. It's quite the opposite. He's basically trying to re-regulate the internet, just regulate it in a way that serves corporate interests instead of the public's.
0: Well put. And in fact, destroying it is another way of saying it, destroying Mm -hmm. net neutrality. But net neutrality seems fairly neutral as a way to discuss what's going on. There's nothing neutral about it. But you have said that this is a threat to the core sort of social contract that the public has with government and ultimately, of course, corporations. But- I wanted to bring up another aspect, and that is that sometimes people say, well, this is just progress. This is the way it's going. Newspapers have given way to digital media. And right now in Los Angeles, we're facing a crisis of the Alternative News weeklies: the LA Weekly, OC Weekly, LA List have all fired a lot of people as they go very, very lean and maybe out. And that's what's happened to so many newspapers as well. How do you see that as related, if in any way, to this radical privatization of the Internet?
2: Well, I think it is related. And even when imagining where we actually maintain net neutrality online, and even if we were to increase access to the Internet, we're still facing this problem that actual news content is being threatened by the economics of the internet. There is no business model right now. There's no way to commercially support the level of journalism that democracy requires. So we have to find non-market-based means to support journalists. I write about this a lot in my book, and my research. There are a number of ways that we can do this, but I think the key point is that net neutrality is one critical front to this larger battle for media democracy, and part of that is going to entail supporting public service journalism, supporting muckraking investigative journalism. And right now, we're rapidly losing that.
0: Well, let's just take a teeny segue before we finish up with this discussion. Victor, how do you see that? What are your proposals to, like, support journalism, because this is clearly the issue. On the one hand, you brought a lot of other reporters into the field after things moved digitally, and you had bloggers, and now a lot of people contributing to various all kinds of great sites. But they do need to be supported. And you don't want to monetize it or commoditize it, as you've said, and how it's going. So how do you see it?
2: There are a number of interesting proposals out there. It's just often a lack of political will to push them forward. But one of the more compelling ideas that I've heard in recent months is the notion that Facebook and Google, who right now are gobbling up almost all advertising online. They're essentially a duopoly for digital advertising, and they're starving the news organizations that still depend on that revenue stream. So there's an idea that British reformers have put forward that's starting to gain some traction, that Google and Facebook should allocate a nominal amount, like 1% of their advertising revenue towards nonprofit public service journalism, and that would generate millions of tens of millions of dollars. And I, I think it would only be fair to see that sort of redistribution from Google and Facebook who are making so much money from this. So that's one idea, but there are many others out there, and I'm hopeful that we'll start turning to those options.
0: Okay, final question. The last time that net neutrality was threatened, millions, tens of millions, bombarded Congress with petitions. They jammed phone lines. There were demonstrations. And that movement staved off the action. Do you think it's going to be the same this time around?
2: Well, I am hopeful that people are seriously engaged right now with this issue. I think we're almost up to 23 million public comments uh, to the SEC In the last 10 days or so, there have been over 500,000 calls to Congress. So people are engaged. They really care about this issue. They realize what they will lose without net neutrality. And like I said earlier in our discussion, even if on December 14th, Pai and the FCC throw it out, the battle does not stop there. I think it will head to the courts. I think people will continue to be engaged. And as we've been talking throughout this discussion, net neutrality is only kind of the tip of the iceberg. We also have to start focusing on this monopoly power, these telecom monopolies that have so much power over our Internet and over the SCC, which is essentially captured by these commercial interests. So I think the battle will continue.
0: People are definitely engaged. I want to thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there, Victor Picard. But thanks for joining us today. Victor Picard is an associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of America's Battle for Media Democracy, among other titles. Writes everywhere, and you can find an excellent interview with him that appeared this week on Jacobin Magazine online. Victor Picard, thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio.
2: Thank you, Susie. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Suzy Wiseman.